Tonight's talk is the Brahma Vihara heart. In the Buddhist Pali language, Brahma means um, divine or sublime, we could say sacred. And Vihara means dwelling, abode, sacred place. Often we call it just um, divine abiding because it suggests the practice that we do, calling up these divine aspects of the heart and abiding in them, filling and then radiating. <coughs> and the word for heart in the Buddhist ancient Pali language, citta, is it's the same word for heart or mind. So you often hear us say heart, mind, or when we say mind, we also mean heart. And the four Brahma Viharas that I'll be speaking of tonight, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, are really four qualities of one whole um, enlightened mind, bright, brightly shining, luminous mind. It's just really four aspects of the same thing. But it helps us to investigate and have wisdom and understanding of each of these each of these aspects because they each have a certain response to life as it is. I was thinking a little earlier of this advertisement. I think Michelle found it in a Canadian magazine when we were teaching a few years ago some years ago at Hollyhock. And it was a f photograph of, it was an advertisement of this guy, his name was John apparently. He's carrying a surfboard and he's standing next to his new SUV and there's a kayak on the roof, on the roof racks and skis and a mountain bike. He's wearing fancy new board shirts and a nice new t-shirt, you know, of nice cotton fabric. And the caption underneath it is, if you want to be one with everything, John should have one of everything. <laughs> and I was reminded of that because I was looking at the tag of the t-shirt I was wearing yesterday that Pasha picked out for me a couple of days ago. So I was about to throw it away. So I think I'll keep this tag and put Pasha's name on it, you know. And uh, this is just an example of the assimilation of these sacred heart practices. Among other things, the name of the t-shirt company is called Prana, Breath, Life, Vitality of the Spirit. And it says, welcome to the mindfully designed, built to last products born from the experience. <laughs> I don't know what our teachers would think about <laughs> all of that. Um, Michelle and I try to present an authentic lineage of teachings. And later, I'll talk more in, in honor and in gratitude of our teachers, our teacher and teacher's teachers, uh, as Upandita, our teacher, often did himself. In, in, as gratitude is an aspect of metta and the other Brahma Viharas. And it awakens the sense that of the grace, you know, and magnificent beauty and honor um, and fortune we all have of being receivers, being receptacles of the teaching lineage back to the time of the Buddha and the Buddhas before this Buddha of this era. It helps to feel that we're connecting with like an electric impulse passed down through the ages from uh, those who devoted their lives totally to doing that, the ordained sangha, nuns and monks, and lay women and men and householders who, even though they lived the household life like we do, they valued the Dhamma so much 
that they also made a difference in their families, in their communities, uh, in their countries, in the world. So we have this today, this lineage. And just wanted to begin the talk by expressing that gratitude because it's clearly uh, a, a form of the Brahma Vihara heart. So these divine abidings, the metta or unconditional love, Michelle spoke of last night. And she spoke of the, the near enemy being that which is the masquerade. It looks like and it can have a certain feeling tone and we can mistake it for p- pure love that has no conditions whatsoever, that's not dependent on anything. You know, and I'm going to come back and talk mostly about metta tonight, so I'll just briefly give an overview of all of these Brahma Viharas because they all have already started. They all have already come up in our practices, whether we know it or not. And as she said, the opposite of metta is ill will or anger, fear, resentment, hatred, aggression, and violence. The Pali word for compassion is uh, karuna. Compassion is like the heart, the metta heart's response to where there's anguish in the world, pain in the world, discord, anxiety, anything out of kilter that the heart connects to directly without fear or judgment. The near enemy looks like compassion, looks and maybe feels like this caring tone, but it's, there's a conditionality, you know, and it may be grief or sorrow or pity, uh, distancing from fear, afraid of fear. Often I call karuna fearless compassion. And as Michelle said last night, these are called near and far enemies, not because they're wrong or bad, but because we need to understand the difference. Uh, and there's a, a time and a need to work clearly and openly and honestly with all the states, uh, all the kinds of clinging and dependent love and the grief and sorrow that surely accompany where there's uh, anguish and discord and suffering in the world. And the opposite, far enemy of karuna, compassion, um, is cruelty or any kind of control and manipulation. So it's subtler than we might think. Because we, uh, we can all think of examples of gross and um, uh, you know, poignant cruelty uh, in, in situations in the world that are continuously oppressive in that way. But think of the subtle ways in which we're self-controlling and manipulating and uncaring toward toward our own self and other beings. So any kind of of um, trying to manipulate, control, or steer experience away from what it really is is the absence of the total presence of compassionate care. And the third Brahma-vihara in the ancient Pali language is called mudita. And it means empathetic joy or appreciative consciousness, the capacity to appreciate where there's joy. So just like the heart, warm heart of metta when it touches suffering can respond with tenderness and care to that hurt, to that pain, to that anguish. The warm heart of metta, the fundamental ground of metta heart, when it, wherever it touches happiness in the world, or beauty, you know, there's or this unbridled um, enthusiasm and zest that's a part of, vital part of life. It's the response of the heart to celebrate, to appreciate, to attune and resonate in, and um, be a co-partner in that happiness, to feel happiness wherever we see it externally and internally, and to appreciate it. It's, it's, it's harder than we might think because when you hear what the far enemy is, envy and jealousy, we're built on a, on a culture of consumerism, comparing, measuring, 
analyzing uh, competition in, in mostly uncaring ways, you know, not in a spirit of cooperation. And, and so, of course, that's the ground of envy and jealousy. And even deeper than that, as I'll speak about um, when I talk directly about Murita, underneath it all is, is our, our feelings of unworthiness and inadequacy, not good or not good enough. And the near enemy that looks like joy is any kind of attached joy that we may celebrate someone's joy, but we're kind of hooked into it in a way in which it isn't the pure celebration of that person's success or accomplishment, you know, whatever reason they're happy. It's not just this pure appreciation that's quite rare in our culture. Upeka is the Pali term. Upeka means it's a very profound the most profound, perhaps, of these four spiritual emotions. And it's what makes them all the same, in essence. It's equanimity. It's balance of mind. It's the serene acceptance of things as they are. And it's, it's, it's the quality of these four spiritual emotions that balances all the other ones, that keeps them from sliding into their near or far enemies. It's the most subtle because, as we'll see, the, the, the feeling tone of it is neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's just evenness in the face of whatever might be pleasant or attractive or compelling or unpleasant, repulsive, intimidating. And we're often caught in a world you know, of chasing an attachment to what we think we want or what we think is enjoyable and avoiding, denying, repressing, fearing what's unpleasant. Whereas equanimity is just this presence. However, it's not what's known as its near enemy, which is indifference, disconnection, uncaring, insensitivity, numbing out. All of those can look like that evenness of equanimity, that sort of neutral tone. But it's not. Real, authentic equanimity is very in touch, in tune, connected, feels everything as it is. It's just not reacting, which is its far enemy. The opposite of equanimity is the reactive mind. It's either attaching to what's pleasant or rejecting, aversive to what's unpleasant are confused and bewildered by what's neither pleasant or unpleasant, what's neutral. That's the reactive mind. It's a spiritual slumber, in a way. It's just a life of hankering to get or hankering to get rid of. So pure equanimity is that release and deep and sweet pleasure of non-reactivity and non-attachment, true, connected non-attachment. I see all of these Brahma Viharas as an integral part of our practice, um, whether we put it on, under the umbrella of Vipassana, whether we're doing a Vipassana retreat or doing a, a Brahma Vihara retreat, we teach, we really interweave both facets. And as we said this morning, we see where they come together in a moment, in a pure moment of wholesome, healthy consciousness, awareness. But to begin to focus on each one of these Brahma-vihara chittas, heart states, um, starts to tease them out further into the mind-heart stream because they're an intrinsic part already. We already have them. And the reason why they're, they constitute the heart or mind of a fully enlightened being is because they're already there. It's just like waiting for um, the obstacles to fall away. And the conditions are ripe for the hindrances uh, and distractions. 
and our delusions to fall away, that's what's there. It's like taking an old bronze bowl that's heavily tarnished and looks dark, don't even know it's bronze. We take up a shining, a, a, a cloth to shine it and begin to rub it on that tarnished bronze bowl. And slowly but surely each time we wipe it, some of the tarnish comes off and more of the tarnish comes off and it keeps coming off. And eventually, what happens? The, the innate, intrinsic nature of the bronze bowl shines forth. You know, what it really is. And it's the same. All of our uh, burdens and distractions and delusions and layers of covering, fabrications, aren't an intrinsic part of our own heart-mind, our own chitta. They're called adventitious. They're visitors. They're there from habit and uh, long, our long trail of, of karmic acts and our thoughts and speech and, uh, and bodily actions. It just accumulates this tarnish. As Michelle was saying last night, you know, what it's like with, with the cleansing waters of washing the mind. What happens, you know, the, the sediment begins to settle, begins to uh, uh, move away, and the heart-mind starts to shine forth as it really is. So just even paying attention, you know, that, that first intention, may metta arise, or may I incline my heart, chitta, toward metta, toward unconditional love. In that instant, it's there. We may quickly start fabricating. You know, our story may quickly follow. Well, you know, is it there? Well, where is it? You know, uh, what am I feeling? Is that sensation metta? Is that thought metta? Am I doing metta right? You know, should I go to my metta subject? Should I be with myself or the benefactor? Should I do you know wordless abiding? And all those questions start filling the mind. And that's our habitual mind. It's continually fabricating, making a story. Michelle was saying, either last night or this morning, our practice is about the moment-to-moment connecting and sustaining meta-awareness. And we do it again and again. It's like washing. You know, we wash, we rub with a cloth or our hands, shampoo, our hair, our bodies, again and again. Vitaka means connecting awareness. Vichara means sustaining awareness. Immer- the immersion into the experience. So it's a metta vitaka, metta connecting awareness, metta vichara, uh, metta sustaining awareness. That begins to immerse wherever we um, aim it in the abiding, in the body, in the senses, in the metta subject doesn't matter. It's that action again and again in the purity of intention, again and again, to abide or incline the mind or to focus on the metta subject, to immerse. It's that is the cleansing action. That's the cleansing activity. And we do it with that spirit of repetition and patience because they're great virtues. They're great supporting virtues. It's, it's not a struggle to get or get rid of anything. Everything that happens is so important from the very beginning. That very first moment of pure intention followed by the mental fabrication is so important because eventually we're going to we start to catch that that's what we do all the time. Most of our day is responding to experience and immediately our story about the experience arises. In the immediacy of the moment, it's true, it's real. It's felt experience, the sensation, the sight, the recognition of a friend, the sound of a voice or anything. In that moment, that scent, that taste, that sensation is as it is. Our habit is to immediately embellish, make a story, fabricate, and then that's what we relate to. So it's hard to get what's real. I often talk about Brahma Vihara's as a 
transformative experience or as transmissions, just like our lineage, 2,600 years old now, this year, is a transmission from teacher to teacher uh, and retreats are a sacred place in which we receive this transition. You know, what happens is the realization of our practice, this again and again, spirit of repetition, connecting and sustaining. And then what happens is we see where we're fabricating. So what happens, that recognition, fabrication or story making, we let go. And the moment we let go, we can feel. And it's very, very rare to really feel a feeling separate from our story, separate from the fabrication. And we can't say it enough because the whole engine of transformation is in feeling. Feeling is healing. Meta-feeling or mindful feeling is healing. And you'll understand why as I talk further and mostly as you personally experience that. So we feel the feeling, whatever it is, and it's often a blockage. It's often a a near or far enemy. So attached love, conditional love. I love you if you behave this way, if you love me back, if you make my tea in the morning, Uh, if you change your um, behaviors. Um, But as Michelle said, the difference between the unconditional acceptance of metta uh, and unskillful behavior. So it doesn't mean we don't ask for awareness of unskillful behavior. But look, look at it this way. If we do so with an aversive awareness, with an aversive expectation, we really can't expect that much change and shift. If we do so with that unconditional connection, uh, and as Michelle spoke of last night, attunement to the proximate cause of metta, which is resonating with another person's goodness, you know, feeling their gold, then what they get from us is this glow, this shine, this total acceptance of where they're at. But then we can sort of deliver the message of how their behavior is affecting us. That's the most opportune moment for a genuine shift when one feels completely loved. It's like I experience this every day with Pasha because, you know, he's five years old and it's his duty to be an anarchist, you know, most of 50 of the 60 minutes of the hour (laughs) for both his dad, his mom, Michelle, myself. And, and, and I noticed this, you know, if there's a reaction to his behavior, he's going to be a, a greater anarchist. He's going to resist more, you know, to the point where uh, he feels unloved or punished, you know, or scolded and he, and he cries. I notice that when I connect with that gold in him, you know, that passionness of his essence, and I can see that he sees the glow in my eyes, of love and compassion and joy in his being and uh, and really an equanimity about his behavior. And he sees that. And I can tell because he smiles back. He probably couldn't put it into words what he's feeling necessarily, but I know he's feeling it. And then if I ask him to do something or not to do something, he'll do it. Because he feels this total, complete safety. And then it's like a, a relationship with a mentor. You know, uh, and I really had wonderful mentors in my life. And nearly all of them, I felt them seeing me completely and unjudged and never an uncaring, critical judgment. So because I felt held in their, in their glow of acceptance and that, that they could see, and the earliest mentors, I realized later, could see my goodness long before I ever knew I had it. 
but it was still so effective. Because they'd look at me and they'd, you know, I didn't know why they'd love me, because I might feel unlovable or unworthy of it, but I'd still feel it and I'd feel held by them. And then they could give me whatever feedback they, they wanted. Paul Reps was one of the first mentors when I came back from being a monk for several years in Burma. Uh, and I was, you know, an awkward person back in Hawaii, Honolulu, after all these years, in, first in India and then Burma. Uh, and I didn't know, and, and plus I was terrified to, to teach what I knew and, to, and even to speak publicly and quite shy by nature. So, and Reps saw all this. He referred to himself as Reps. He, was, he died in the 90s, uh, at age 97 or something, and he was this iconoclastic Zen master who, in 1916, at age 15, went to Burma and Japan, India, you know, alone, and learned all these arts. And, and he was irreverent, you know, and he was always questioning his, his, his Zen associates. You know, why do you need to get this transmission? Why do you need to be called Roshi? Or why do you need to do, you know, get all these titles and whatnot? He said, he'd say, true Zen masters live under bridges. You know, and uh, so he lived with us for a year, Michelle and I and our eight-year-old. Um, and he took a real sincere interest and heard Vipassana, Burmese Vipassana, at least for the first time. He gave his classes on Sunday from his... Uh, from the, our studio where he lived. And on Thursday evenings, I give a class, meditation, 45 minutes, and then, and then Dhamma talk or discussion. And after the talks, he'd take me into a little room, you know, and he'd say, say Stephen, you're not Upandita. <laughs> you're not Mr. Burmese Buddhist. Don't try to be what you're not. You know, you're, you're Stephen from Hawaii, you're Hawaiian-American, and you have your own gifts, and you have your own rhythm and style and stride, uh, and you'll reach it if you let go of this, trying to embellish who you are by being your teachers, you know, or, or being Burmese, or even being Buddhist. And he, I never felt criticized, ever once. There's just some way he held me energetically and by the, the warmth of his body and presence and care that I trusted him. And he's maybe the second person, a teacher, that I trusted so much, you know, which is so important in, in this practice. The first was Upantita. I didn't go to Burma to find a teacher. I had had many spiritual friends and had practiced Vipassana for 10 years, you know, since the very early 70s. And I really felt at home. And I knew my sort of root lineage came from Burma. But we couldn't go to Burma until the end of the 70s. We were only allowed for one week. And then it happened that, that um, the government, uh, which is still a dictatorship, but the early, even the earlier one, relented at some point and said, if you're sponsored by a monastery and you know, they, you're under their care, you can go for as long as you want. Um, so I went to the Mahasi Meditation Center in Rangoon to further immerse in the lineage and understand and deepen the practice. I wasn't looking for a teacher. I had another teacher first who would have been a great teacher, you know, and he passed away early from an illness. So then I met Upandita, and it was one of those immediate kind of recognitions, a two-way, um, in, in the Burmese it's called Yezed Sonde, it's an idiom translated as um, water drop connection or stream convergence. And it's their way of saying what we know of as when we feel this karmic connection with someone we felt we've known for lifetimes. 
You know, we kind of think the same or feel the same or it just feels so complementary and so effortless. In the idiom, I like itself because it means in the, in the Burmese tradition that in a previous life, you and this person, out of compassion, did something really good, did really good work. Maybe once or maybe for a large part of your life. But together you shared in this powerful, meritorious, compassionate action of helping people uh, with your heart, your thoughts, your bodily action. And because of that, the result of that draws you back together in a future lifetime, like in this lifetime, like two, like two water drops that come together, like magnets and become one, or two streams that converge into one. I love that idiom, and, and it explains the sense, you know. Upandita, on the 19th of July, turned 90. And then I met him when he was like 59, and I was 29, and the feeling is as powerful as ever, and never a moment of doubt. And, and I, it, like with reps, I felt immediately seen. And what that does is it starts to release the metta inside and the compassion and joy and the evenness of upeka. And that's where they become like a transmission. You know, there's the sense of connecting and sustaining with whatever is real, whatever is true. It doesn't matter if we like it or dislike it, whether it feels good or doesn't feel good, whether it's really painful or really ecstatically blissful. It's just real, it's what's true. And then because of that metta connection and immersion, we let go of the fabricating mind that immediately wants to do something with it. Even just make comments about it. But usually analyze or categorize, judge, usually with a critical, uncaring judgment, not a creative, wise assessment, which is vital. Thoughts are vital to Buddhist practice as the Buddha taught. Uh, and there's a time, as we'll be sharing, when and how to use thoughts skillfully. In the meditative realm, feeling is more primal in our individual and collective evolution. You know, thoughts came later. Uh, and if, you, if we consider a feeling awareness or feeling sense of what's happening in, in our body, in our emotional body, uh, with immediate experience, is very unifying. It can, it, that, that feeling, presence, felt sense, connection with something, suddenly we feel okay, even if it's unpleasant, because it's true and it's real, and we're feeling it, not thinking about it. Whereas if we consider how thoughts can start to divide and split off and judge and analyze. And then we've sort of lost the connection. The connecting metta and sustaining metta begin to disappear. It becomes a cerebral assessment, analysis, and process. We do it all the time. The value of practice is that we begin to see that itself without judging. You know, and without going down on ourselves, without any punishing um, thoughts that we're doing it again and we're not doing it right and so forth, it's very liberating to notice the moments where we're fabricating. Upandita said again and again that in some ways it's more powerful to recognize the moments where we've not been mindful. Because truthfully, we occupy most of the sitting. Most of sitting, the mind is off, right? And it's really powerful to start to recognize that. Because then when we really connect, when we really do feel and experience as it is, that's what starts to transform the heart. That's what starts to shine the tarnish off of the brightly shining bronze. And that's what starts to reverse the, the habit of mental proliferation, fabricating of making a story of experience rather than feeling it 
as it truly is. So the transmission goes on from, from the feeling and feeling deeply, it becomes an abiding. And of course, this all can happen so quickly and is happening quite quickly. So I'm not describing something that happens over days or even over parts of a meditation. They're all happening quite simultaneously. You know, every time we're just connecting, sustaining, letting go of the judgments, the fabrication, the feeling awareness, the metta feeling, which is starting to heal, starting to heal the splits and fractures, fragmented mind from all the intrusions and all the violations from early on in this life, most of them pre-verbal, and whatever we came into this life with. That's where they start. This is where metta is this catalytic unifying force. So it's bringing the mind-body back into harmony, into healing. So that too is a transmission. And then abiding in that healing energy where there's this sense of filling, like an empty pond of a stream. And there's a sudden rain that fills the back of a valley with water and the water begins rushing down, filling up pond after pond after pond. And that's how metta is working. It's filling up our own pond uh, and it's only kind of radiating out to the next, to the surround, the environment, the, the earth, body, or other beings, when, when the pond naturally fills. And then by nature, by gravity, cataracts over and fills the next pond. We could regard each sitting that way. Our manageable segments, as Michelle likes to say, of each sitting, where there's a sense of filling before there's any idea or um, thought that we need, you know, should we be sending it out or should we be going to another benefactor or to the dear friend category? No. Just keep abiding and keep on a cellular level, on a molecular level, atom by atom, letting that metta heal and reconnect, rebind where we've been split, where we've been shattered and fractured before. And then the radiation happens by itself. And sometimes it feels like a sudden inclusion of all life in our being. And sometimes it feels like a moving out from our heart. It doesn't matter. Sometimes I explain Vipassana as um, unpacking that, that um, fabricated sense of I and self. You know, all the thoughts and feelings and emotions that are densely packed together and that are, that are sewn together with our attachments and our fears and our bewilderment or confusion. So Vipassana kind of unpacks all of that since it's that it's, it's the core and cause of most of our suffering. That, that I we have to protect and project. And that solidified, separate sense of a sub- substantial self apart from earth and other living things. Metta and the other Brahma Viharas, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, is like an expansion of, a, of the sense of ourselves opening, measureless. These four Brahma-viharas are also called the four immeasurables. You know, it's the mind or heart of metta that has no measure, that has no end, it's limitless. It just moves out. So rather than a solidified, separate little kernel of an eye, you know, that's a problem because it's fiction, first of all. And it's just built upon by our, our fabricated thoughts, um, induced by fear and, and attachment. Whereas metta, infused with wisdom, is, is selfless. It's metta that's radiating metta. It's metta that's feeling metta. And it really expands our sense of being, not a separate self, but nevertheless, our own taste, you know, our own scent. Because we're all still individual karmic streams. 
compassion, joy, metta, um, takes away nothing. Selfless love is not a, any kind of di- diminishment of ourselves. It's an expansion, an opening. So abiding often has that sense of inclusion and limitlessness as we take in the immediate environment within our reach, the beings seen and unseen within our reach. And then as it spreads out like a, like a visceral low body heat, you know, moving out into space or metta imagination or uh, metta emotion, it can grow as large as universes, you know, and galaxies. We stumble all the time, like a river flowing through the countryside. It's full of um, these big black boulders. Uh, and within us, as we're you know, going through moment to moment, this connecting, sustaining, letting go, the story, the embellishment, and then trying to feel. It's really hard to feel because we often feel numbness we're up against fear and then there's reaction to fear. We fear the fear or feel aversion to the aversion or we get swept away in the longing or overwhelmed and drowned in the grief. Uh, And it's really important that we learn to um, work with it, work with it skillfully, bring our, when we need to, our Vipassana mindfulness. If we don't need to, just keep trying to expand that metta field to let it be. So just like the river doesn't oppose and try to destroy the river rock, it flows over it and around it and under it and gradually it smooths its rough edges and gradually the river rock, you know, integrates, becomes a particle, becomes a part of the water, becomes a part of the river itself. That's how we get pebbles. Little river pebbles were once huge boulders. And sometimes we feel, you know, this boulder, this black hole, or this big karmic block, or not, or sense of entanglement. Michelle and I emphasize so much practice um, that's body-based and sense-based. It keeps us close to the real, to felt experience. So rather than being lost in what we judge or think about pain, we're actually feeling tension, tightness, heat, pressure. Rather than being swept away by our thoughts about what we see, we're just with the miracle and magic of seeing and carried away by what, by what we think is the cause of sound. We're just attuned to sound vibration. So in metta and the Brahma Viharas, we're using each of these realms, each of these sense realms or sense fields as a is a field to respond to what's happening with metta. So when the, when the body feels these huge boulders, it's not just physical, of course. You know, it's physical uh, correlation to one of those karmic knots, you know, one of those places where we split off. Most of what we've become developed before we were able to conceptualize. Most of what was invasive or manipulative or controlling happened before we could um, formulate words to express our feelings. So most of our karmic knots and entanglements and, and blocks are, are nonverbal. They, they wouldn't have a story no matter how much we proliferated. And in some cases, no matter how much we went around and around trying to analyze, you know, uh, all that can really g- ever get to it is a pre-verbal awareness. Metta is a pre-verbal awareness. Vipassana mindfulness is a pre-verbal awareness. And it gets to it like, like the river that just feels that numbness, that block, that rock, and just accepts, flows around it, you know, and then learns to dance, touch and back off, modulate, like in homeopathy, we just take a bit, teeny taste of the disease, and it has an effect in our whole 
you know, reconstituting our whole immune system to innately, intrinsically deal with the disorder and recreate balance. Likewise, we don't need to charge in there. And if we do, we're likely to bump our heads on that river rock, you know, and get hurt. And we don't need to also run away. The most important thing is, is being present, is not losing that felt sense of the present moment. So we touch those blocks, we recognize them as, at that moment, perhaps mean impenetrable grief, betrayal, longing, fear. And then we go to a safe harbor. We put our metta to our favorite waterfall or beach or another being, you know, another metta subject that's safe, another part of the body. And that's like homeopathy because we've touched it. You know, something is in gear for the healing. As we've been saying, metta by its nature and the other Brahma Viharas by their nature are self-healing. You really don't have to do anything at all. You start to see how indeed it, it, it reunites, begins to heal and unify where we've been wounded and where we've been uh, divided. And then it liberates. You know, there's a release, there's openings. And eventually those openings start to become irreversible. It's just we're, we, there's less spiritual slumber, there's less attachment. We begin to really loosen the, the fears and attachments and the confusions. That's why we practice, because there are real results that really do shift and transform our lives, inwardly and outwardly, that really do affect our thinking patterns in healthier ways, away from the unskillful and entangling and toward the skillful and unifying healing, and shift the way we speak out of fear and habit and ill will and fabrication, and the way we use our bodies. Upandita often expressed appreciation when food is served as they are to nuns and monks at mealtime. Every day they eat um, around 10.30 and take no more food after 12 noon. Um, and he, he, there's many ways to express, you know, and acknowledge someone's generosity because surely it's a, it's a mental state and it's a state of uh, non-greed in action of, of um, uh, the release of holding on and, and attachment. There's many ways to express it. Often Upandita would do it quite directly by saying, that's really skillful body metta. Just because someone is physically preparing food and offering it and placing it and then serving when the plate you know, is empty if they want more, they serve more. It's a bodily metta action. So it's another way to feel that there's no real separation between the heart and the body and start to feel a unification when metta is behind the motivation in compassion, joy, equanimity. Then it's a unified process of our, of our thoughts and our speech and our bodily action. They're not discombobulated or divided fractured. There was an enlightened nun in the time of the Buddha having a conversation with an enlightened monk and she already knowing how she felt about her question and the answer, asked this monk, well, what do you think? What, what would you wish if you had one wish that could come true? What would that be? And the monk answered that everyone could have an unbroken body awareness, knowing that that alone is all we need. And it's so grounding and so embodying, you know, everything we need to know as the Buddha often said, is in, is, is in this fathom-long body. <clears throat> 
the whole universe, the nature for it to, the cause for it to arise and fall away, and the cause for um, darkness and the cause for darkness to fall away, and the cause for light and peace and liberation and the path to that. I'm closing with a poem by Holly Hughes called Mine Wanting More. Only a beige slat of sun above the horizon, like a shade pulled not quite down. Otherwise, clouds, sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mine wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds, an osprey to stitch the sea to sky, music, a symphony perhaps, a Chinese gong. But the mind always wants more than it has. One more bright day of sun. One more clear night in bed with the moon. One more hour to get the words right. One more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket in dried grasses. As if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough. As if joy weren't strewn all around. That beautifully describes, you know, we have all around already, within and around, this unconditional love of metta, this fearless or sometimes fierce compassion, empathetic, appreciative joy, and that wide heart, wide mind of equanimity. Sit a moment. 